Hi, guys. It's lovely to see you all here. Um, I'm H. Matters for those that I haven't met. Um, and I'm one of the service pastors here at the, the now currently five and seven. Um, we are finishing our series, um, Don't Lose Heart, tonight. Um, now, don't lose heart. That's a long passage. And I have to confess, when I first read it and saw that not only was I preaching on it, but it was also the last in a series, I felt a bit discouraged. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty meaty passage. It seems quite stern. It seems quite stark. Um, but by the end of tonight, you'll see that it is not. Um, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll start. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you gave it to us to build us up, to encourage us, and to bring us closer to you. And I pray that you would do that tonight as we look at this passage. Amen. So, very briefly for some context, this letter to the Corinthians is Paul talking to a church that he's planted, that he loves, um, that has gone slightly off the rails. Um, he's preparing for his third visit, and he's imploring the Corinthians um, basically to get back on track. Um, he loves them, and he's desperate for their faith in Jesus to be strong. Now, one of the themes in this book is the fact that the Corinthians, they sort of been led astray by these sort of supposed super apostles. They've been lured into thinking that actually it's all about success now. It's all about influence now. It's all about wealth now. It's all about strength now. And the Corinthians have been looking at Paul and they've been seeing weakness, a lack of influence, a seeming lack of authority, a lack of success. Um, they've got a skewed perspective on what's going on. And Paul is basically saying to them, you've lost sight of the true nature of the gospel. We saw last week that actually it starts in weakness. It starts in this desperate need for Jesus. And then through Jesus leads to strength. And this passage, it's got warnings in it and it's got challenges in it, but it's also got encouragement in it. The main challenge is in verse 5. Paul basically says to them, stop judging. Stop judging me. Why don't you take a look at yourselves? He basically says, why don't you do a 360, in modern terms, a 360 review of yourselves. So verse 5, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So tonight, we're going to do what Josh, this morning, very cleverly coined, the Holy 360. Hopefully, you might get a little image up. This is what we're going to do tonight, the Holy 360. We're going to look up, we're going to look in, we're going to look out or across. We're going to look um, what's coming down, and we're going to look back. It's easy, isn't it, to look at this year of 2020 and just to think it was a write-off. Let's write it off. Let's get to 2021 and let's start again. Maybe you've had a fine year, but it's been a bit boring. Maybe you've had a terrible year. I don't know what your year has been like. But what I do know is that nothing with the Lord is a write-off. That if you are a follower of Christ, there is something in this year, probably more than one thing, that he has for you, that he's wanted to do in you, that he's wanted to do through you. And it's not too late so this year, as the year comes to a close, where are you at? Where are you at in your work life? Have you been working from a kitchen table or for, from your bedroom for the last nine months? 
if you haven't, lucky you. How's your, how's, how's your home life? How's it going with your housemates? Have you had to chop and change where you're living? Have you had the same housemates for nine months, in which case, how are those relationships looking? How's your relationship with Jesus? How's your faith fared over the ups and downs of this year? How's your relationship with church, online church? It's been a bit different, hasn't it? How's your relationship with friends, with Christian friends, who you are doing your Christian walk with? Let's look at the Corinthians um, and how it went for them. This idea of a 360, I don't know about you, but it's not something that I love the idea of. But here he is saying to the Corinthians to do this 360. He says, look back. So verse five, he's saying, examine, are you in the faith? What does it mean by in the faith? He's not saying, have you been full of faith recently? It's not about feelings. He's saying, have you been living to the core or by the core principles, the core truths of the gospel? Has your belief system been centered around Jesus, your need for him, what he did on the cross for you, and how you can live your life with him? Has that been the belief system that you've been living by? And of course, he knows that that's not the case. We saw at the end of chapter 12, their lives are full of sin. They've been influenced by these super apostles. Their belief system has skewed. It's all based on the now and the success and the strength and the influence and the wealth that they can achieve now. So he says, look back. What's been fueling your living this year? And if it isn't based on the faith, if it isn't based on the true, true core of Christianity, then you need to fix that. Then he says, look in, in, again in verse five. Does Christ Jesus live in you? It's quite a big question, isn't it? He knows that the truth is, if you ask Jesus to come and live in you through repentance, the promise is that he will come and live in you. But there's another way that you can tell whether Jesus is living in you. And that's by what spills out of you. Are the fruits of the Spirit spilling out of the Corinthians? Love forbearance, peace, patience, kindness. Well, we know, again, they're not. He says at the end of chapter 12, he says, I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. He says, I'm afraid that I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity. He's looking at the Corinthians and he's saying, you've put... Jesus somewhere in the back of your heart because right at the center of your heart is not Christ Jesus. It's sin, other things that are spilling out of you. Then he says to them later on in the passage, he's sort of imploring them to rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, look up. Are you looking up? Where are you looking? Are they praising Jesus in everything they do, everything they think? Well, of course, again, we know that they're not. And he's saying, be restored to Jesus. Rejoice in him. Make him the praise that is on your lips. Then he says, look across. Again, verse 11. He says, strive for restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. He's saying it's not just about being restored to God. It's about how are your relationships with the rest of the church. And again, he knows they're bad. They're full of discord, selfish ambition, fits of rage. 
It seems a pretty stark 360, doesn't it, as he sort of pivots around. Nothing seems very good. This is actually how I view 360s. So I feel like there's two camps, aren't there, people, whether you've had, if you've had a 360 review. Some people seem to absolutely relish them. I have friends like this and people in my family like this. They just, they love going in and they love the encouragement of being told what they've done well. And then they seem to sort of relish the challenge of what they can do better. I go into a 360 already crushed. I never believe anything anyone says to me that's good, because I'm basically like, we all know, don't we, that to do a 360 well, you start with something good, so that then the bad stuff doesn't feel as bad. So basically, when the person's saying the good stuff, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you've had to think of something that's good, so that when the bad stuff comes, I won't be like, Ugh. well, so I basically go in already feeling awful. I've already thought of all the bad things you're gonna say, it's awful. The great news with this 360 is it's not like your normal 360. And there's two reasons why. Firstly, it's the safest 360 that you can do. The Corinthians, the great thing is, is that with this 360, they're not gonna be fired. They are already children of God. They are loved by God. Jesus has already died on the cross for them. Yes, Paul talks to them sternly. Verse two, he says, I mean, this is pretty stark. He says, I already gave you a warning which I, when I was with you the second time, and now I repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. What he's talking about here is, is Christian discipline, something we don't really like talking about. He's saying, actually, there are things you need to fix, and if you don't fix them, then I will need to discipline you. But the discipline, the heart behind the discipline is to write the Corinthians relationship with Jesus, is to strengthen them. He says in verse 10, that is why I write these things when I am absent. Oh, sorry, yes. For the, the authority the Lord gave me was for building up, not tearing you down. He might be using Christian discipline, this the way of making it right, saying this isn't okay that there's this sin in your life, but he's doing it to strengthen them, to build them up. So it's the safest 360, because they're already loved. They're already children of God. They just need to get some things right. And secondly, it's the most important 360 you will ever do. The goal of the 360 is not about performance. It's not about bettering their performance. And that's not the goal. The goal of the 360 is to bring the Corinthians closer to Jesus, to restore them to God. Verse 9, he says, Our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This might mean they need to mend some of their ways, but it's so that they will have a closer relationship with Jesus. And it's the most important thing, isn't it? Our relationship with Jesus Life starts with him, life ends with him. When everything else is stripped away, Jesus is who is left. It's the most important thing. Um, when I was at university, I had a car, and um, it cost me 400 pounds, and I loved it. It was a Peugeot 106, and I bought it from a lady who'd only ever driven it sort of two miles every day to work and back. And when I got it, um, a lot about it was broken. Um, the speedometer didn't work, and the petrol gauge didn't work, so I never knew when I was going to run out of petrol. 
What I didn't realize was there was something more significant wrong with it. So if I took it on a motorway, as soon as I got up to 60 miles an hour, the engine would cut out and uh, obviously would drive onto the hard shoulder. But I quickly learned that this only ever happened once in every journey. So I'd go along the motorway, engine would cut out, pull over onto the hard shoulder, and then I could restart the car and I'd be good. I could go over 60 and it wouldn't cut out. And so that was my solution. I couldn't afford to get it fixed, so fine. Occasionally it went wrong. I broke down on a roundabout in Durham. I broke down on a hill in Durham and had to be rescued by the police. But other than that, my system worked. And some friends, when we drove in convoy, would, you know, they'd choose the other car, but that was fine. And then one time, I took it on sort of a road trip during my holidays. My parents lived in Yorkshire, so I went from Yorkshire to Sussex to Norfolk to London or something like that. And I was driving back from London to Yorkshire, back home. And I'd done the usual, driven up six miles an hour onto the hard shoulder, start the engine again, off I go. So I was in the fast lane, and it was quite a busy day. And suddenly, unexpectedly, the engine cut out again. And it was petrifying because everything went. There were no brake lights to show that I was slowing down, but I was obviously slowing down at quite a pace. And I could see the cars you know, speed, coming closer and closer to me. And I had to do one of those sort of reckless, get myself over to the hard shoulder, knowing that I probably only had seconds before someone smashed into the back of me. Once I was on the hard shoulder, you sort of take stock, don't you, of how foolish you've been. For so long, I had just been not fixing my car. And of course, it wasn't, it was actually quite a simple fix. It wasn't a big deal. And um, the car didn't actually last much longer. But I risked quite a lot. I was young. I sort of, I thought I was immortal. I didn't think I needed to fix my car. And, and I was really, really lucky. The message version of verse 5, it says this. Test yourselves to make sure that you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along, taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. You need first-hand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out. If you fail the test, do something about it. Paul's saying to us tonight through this letter, where are you at in your faith? Don't drift. Don't take it for granted. Do regular checkups. It's that important. And when we do this 360, we're saying, God, I want to be right with you. God, you are more important than anything else in my life. God, I want to live for you. So where are you today? How has this year been? As you look back, what belief system have you been living by the past year? Has it been the true, true core essence of the gospel? Or has it actually been that you've been lured away? Perhaps your belief system's been sort of fueled by escapism. I've just got to get through this year, and the best way I can do that is escapism. Perhaps this year your belief system's actually been based around fear, a fear of losing your job, or an anxiety about where you're going to be living, or what are you going to do if another lockdown comes and you're living on your own Whatever it is, it doesn't have to stay that way. Because we know, don't we, that with Jesus, we have everything that we need. That the true core essence of the gospel meets every need that we have. For, for me, 
when I was homeschooling my three children, um, I know that I took control. I just thought to myself, you know what, I've, I've got to get these children through a term of education and that's really important and I basically thought I my belief system basically became was I was going to do it and I was going to do it best and I just I, I didn't realize it but I stopped trusting God with that aspect of my life and as a result it was highly stressful for me and highly stressful for the children I think highly stressful for our neighbors who regularly heard me say not that way or you know getting really cross with the poor children and you think if I had just stopped and I'd realized that somehow my my beliefs about Jesus and who he is had been shut out of that part of my life and if I'd brought him in how much that might have transformed all of our experience during the summer term let's look in what's living in you in the last few months has Christ Jesus been right at the center of who you are have the fruits of the Spirit been spilling out of you? Hopefully, in parts of our lives, that has been exactly our testimony. But I imagine for all of us, there are aspects of our lives that feel sort of pretty shady at the moment, that aren't full of Jesus. Perhaps there's sin there that we need to deal with. Perhaps we've put something else in pride of place. What's contending in your life What's contending with Jesus for first place? Then up. What are you looking up? Where are you looking at the moment? Which direction are you looking? Is your life full of a praise for Jesus? Or is there something else that you're worshipping? Something else that you're praising? Perhaps it's a sinful habit. Perhaps it's a relationship in your life. Perhaps it's your job. You'll know what it is. And then across, how are your church family relationships going? I think we don't really realize how important church family relationships are. It's so easy, isn't it, to come to church, to receive and to leave, maybe pitch up to connect group. But when you look at this passage, Paul is the most astounding example of what God intended church relationships to be like. He's been battered by the Corinthians And yet his love for them, his perseverance for them, his prayer for them is unceasing. He loves them so much. He's so desperate for them to have a right relationship with Jesus that he's even willing to risk his relationship with them to point out the things that aren't right in their life so that they continue to pursue Jesus, so that they become right with Jesus. Do you have relationships like that? Do you allow people to come into your life and to walk that closely with your relationship with Jesus, that they can keep you accountable, that they can speak into your life. It's seriously challenging, isn't it? But it's the most valuable thing you can have, and it's such a testament to the fact that we are not meant to be independent of one another. We're called to be interdependent of one another, to lean on one another, to do this life together. Now, I've sort of highlighted those questions with the 360. I can't do the 360 for you. But I would implore you to take some time, to take stock of this year, to ask yourself the hard questions, to grab this moment. And the wonder of the gospel is that no matter how long you've been just drifting from Jesus, or no matter what you feel like you've done in life that isn't right, forgiveness is on the table. Jesus has already died on the cross. 
And if you come to him in repentance, you can be made right with him. You can be restored to him in an instant. This passage ends in the most incredible way. The one thing we haven't looked at is down. And that's what God has for us. I'm going to read the message version of the last verse of this passage. It says, The amazing grace of the Master, Jesus Christ, the extravagant love of God, the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It starts with grace and it ends with grace. The Lord longs for us to know his love, to know his grace, to know his friendship. That's what he has for us. If you're going to continue this analogy of the 360 and he's the boss, what an incredible boss to have, that that's what he wants to lavish on us. I think sometimes we don't understand what grace really means until you're in a situation where you have to lean on God's grace. And a friend of mine recently, she sent me these words all about God's grace. And I want to finish with them because they sum it up much better than I do. And then I'm going to hand over to Tim. But I want to read these words almost as a prayer. Um, So let's just adopt a prayerful attitude and I will read them. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multipli- his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our, faith, when our strength has failed, uh, the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Amen.